But this morning, we're going to continue in our series uh, entitled Hope is Here. Hope is Here. And as Ken mentioned, we have these little cards back there. And, you know, uh, don't have a whole lot of them, but we have some. And so use them gingerly. But if you're willing to give them out, we don't want to see them on the dashboard of your car the Sunday after Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday. But if you're willing to give them out, take what you can and uh, distribute those. That would be uh, a real treat to have more folks here next week. But we're in this series called Hope is Here. Hope is Here. And we're going to turn this morning to John chapter 3. Last week we were in John chapter 4 and we talked about uh, from grief to belief. And we, we talked about how when anything in your life drives you closer to Jesus, it is a blessing. doesn't matter what it is. And so... Uh, Dave is understanding that. He told me this morning more fully <laughs> as he recovers that this is a blessing, that even though he can't be here with us, um, God is using his trial to draw him closer to the Lord. But this morning, we want to look at John chapter 3, and you have an outline there before you. And uh, for those of you who've been parents, or maybe even grandparents, I don't know if you've ever had that awkward moment where you're young, two, three, four year old comes to you and s simply asks you, uh, where do babies come from? I don't know if you've ever had that happen, but I don't know who I'm calling. It says Noni Cameron. That's where. Anyway, <laughs> that was odd. She was a lady who passed away many years ago. So, um, but if you've ever had that opportunity as a parent where your child comes to you and says, mommy, daddy, where do babies come from? It's kind of, you gotta, gotta handle that, you know, you don't wanna give them too much information, right? But you, you wanna handle it gingerly, and yet you want them to be satisfied with the answer. And, you know, we've all probably had that experience to some degree. Um, it's probably an inevitable question for a child to ask. And it's, you stop and you ask yourself, why do children ask that question? What, what pushes them to the point of coming to their parents and asking the question, where do babies come from? Uh, you might think, well, it's, it could be um, because possibly they're curious. Um, they have no experience with birth, if you think about this. A baby has no experience with birth. You say, well, wait a minute, the baby was born. But babies don't have any memory of the birth. How many of you can remember your birth? Right? We don't. We don't remember such things. And so it's, it's 
one of those things, birth is one of those things. It's a very natural process in human life. It goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible where God said, be fruitful and what? Multiply, right, to Adam and Eve. Um, but what's kind of unique about the whole experience is that babies, if you think about this, in the, in the birthing process, they're passive. They have nothing to do with their birth. Think about it. They really don't. I mean, they're, they're going to come out. Why? I mean, that's the way it works. They, they can't stay in there forever. It just doesn't work that way. And, and they're kind of passive in the whole situation. It doesn't really have a choice in the matter. And as an infant, they have no memory recall of their birth. So, you know, when they ask where did they come from, uh, they don't remember it. That's why they're asking. They've never experienced birth before in their minds. Uh, I mean, in the birth of a child, who does all the work? Did you ever hear the, the husbands, you know? We had a baby. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? You know, there's a, there's a funny, I, th I think it's a commercial out, and uh, the wife comes to the husband and says, you know how you always say, we had a baby? Yeah? Well, we wrecked the car. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something going on in that moment of a baby's birth that the baby has absolutely nothing to do with. It's not under the control of the infant. It's not under the desire of the infant. It's happening whether the, the child wants it or not. It's a passive event, you could call it, in their life. Something that happens to you. And, and that's really why children ask that question. Because they don't know what happened. They don't remember their birth. It was something that happened to them. And they've never been able to experience something like that. So they're curious. Now, here's what's interesting. Is that Jesus in the Bible, in John 3 here, he kind of has, even though he didn't have, he wasn't an earthly father with his own flesh, didn't have blood children, um, he had the opportunity to answer a very similar question. Um, he had his own, you could say, where do babies come from moment <laughs> with a religious leader of the day. And uh, if you remember this, we, we're, we're going towards the resurrection, right? We're, hope is here because we're going towards the resurrection. And we've looked at John 4, and now we're in John 3. And the point of this, these studies is really to show us the power that the resurrection possesses. And so we come to John chapter 3, and, and this is a chapter, incredible chapter of the Bible, the New Testament in, in John 3, where we have the most famous verse throughout Scripture, John 3.16, right? Everybody knows John 3.16. It contains... The most famous verse in all the Bible. I mean, there's children that know this verse. Even though they don't know where babies came from, they know this verse, okay? But do you know the context around this verse? And this is what we want to share, I want to share with you this morning. Do you know the discourse that Jesus was in was with this religious leader named Nicodemus at the time? And uh, he, he wanted to teach us really about the nature of birth. And so if you 
Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read it. And you can just follow along. We're going to read the first 18 verses. So John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into this, his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. <clears throat> Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world, listen, to condemn the world, but in, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the word of God. Father, we ask you to open our eyes to these truths this morning. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is a beautiful passage. Uh, it, it tells us this man named Nicodemus. It points it right out there, and he's, he's actually coming to find Jesus. Now, we say, well, no one seeks Jesus. Well, he was. He was seeking Jesus. Do you know why? Because God was seeking him. <laughs> it's true. No one seeks Jesus on their own. But when God is drawing you, you can't help but come to Christ. And this is what we're going to see here this morning. This interesting character, Nicodemus. You're not going to find him in any of the other Gospels. He's not in Matthew. He's not in Mark. He's not in Luke. He's only in John. Only in John is this account. It's uniquely placed in John chapter 3. So it begs the question, who is this guy? Who is Nicodemus? Um, one chapter that tells us the story of the, the most, this, this famous verse, of John 3.16, uh, probably you memorized 
that after you memorize Genesis 1.1. But who is Nicodemus? Well, it tells us that he's a Pharisee, first of all. It tells us there he's very studied, you could say. He's accomplished. He's credentialed. He's no doubt an intellectual man. Not only is he a Pharisee, but it tells us there that it uses the phrase he's, he's a ruler of the Jews. Okay, he, He's a bigwig within the Pharisees. That phrase was described those who were part of what they called the Sanhedrin. It was kind of like a ruling council among the religious elite of Jesus' day. Think of it kind of as a, a congress or higher court in our structure today. And they were able to determine the rules and how you had to follow them. And they made determinations about the law. And they were able to hand down um, verdicts of authority, and people would listen to them. So they had status in the, in the religious community of Jesus' day. We see this coming to play on later out in the Gospels because as we get closer to the resurrection, we're going to see that it was the Sanhedrin, that's the court in which Jesus was sentenced to die. They pronounced that sentence. And so here's this man... We see he's a ruler of the Jews. He's credentials. He's studied. You could say he's very religious. He's very religious. If you've been around church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the word Pharisee. You've heard it in sermons. You've read it in the Gospels, maybe. Maybe you did a Bible study on it. It's a, mean, it's a term. Pharisee is a term that means Separated. It means separated. They were separated, what we would say in a bad way. They were legalist. Uh, they were really the heart of what we would call apostate Judaism. Those who had fallen away from the truth. There was probably about 6,000 of them, commentaries tell us, at the time of Christ. So there's quite a few Pharisees. What's interesting, there's only one conversion of a Pharisee in all four Gospels. Only one. And this is the one. This is Nicodemus. These were individuals who the Bible describes them as they loved the old wine. Uh, it means they, they loved their old religion. They didn't want to be messing with it. So that's why when Jesus came on, on the scene and started to do things that they couldn't do, they kind of got offended. And when people started following Jesus more than they followed him, they were really ticked off. And Jesus, really, when he came, who did he come to? He came to the irreligious, right? He came to those who were confronted with their sin. The gospel always goes to those who are not holding on to any false religion. Here, this is the only Pharisee that we have in all four gospels that comes to salvation. That's pretty significant. And to show you how corrupt these people were, the Pharisees, just turn back a page or two to John chapter 2. And you see here Jesus going into the temple and he goes into the temple, and he's, he's right at the heart of Jewish religion. This is where Jewish religion happens, you know. And there you have the Pharisees there, and they were leaders of the Jewish religion. You look at verse 13, 
Um, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple, and here's what happened. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And look at what he does. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers. These were people who, when you came to give an offering, if you didn't have the right coin or whatever, they would, as a charge, they would give you the right one <laughs> at a percentage. He overturned all their tables, verse 16, and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. It says, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus goes in here, he wipes out all these corrupt operations in the temple. And the Pharisees were a part of that. Even though the Sadducees kind of ran the show there, they were still a part of it. We're told that they were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. In Matthew chapter 23, and even if you doubt that these guys were not good guys, listen to what Jesus says about them. Turn over to Matthew 23. <coughs> and, and just look at how our Lord describes these elite religious leaders of his day. Look at what he says in verse one, he says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they, they tell you, but not the works they do. And then he begins to explain them. He says, for they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad. These are like little boxes that they made themselves to look holy, and their fringes long. Everything was extravagant. Verse 6, and they love the place of honor at the feasts, why? Because you got to eat first. And best seats in the synagogue. Why? Because you got the best seat. You were right up front. Everybody can look at you dressed in all your robes and gold and how holy you looked. And greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Very surfacey, but it's very significant. It's interesting, these next couple of verses coming out of the Catholic faith, I just found this interesting. It says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And in verse 9 it says, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. As a Catholic, that really spoke to my heart when I came out of the Catholicism. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, Christ, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Why is he saying that? Why is he bringing up humbleness? Because these people were not humble. They were as proud as could be of their religiosity. In verse 13, he starts the woes. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. Anybody ever called you a hypocrite? It doesn't feel too good. Jesus calls them hypocrites over and over and over. 
in this dialogue here. Um, he says it again in verse, verse 15. Woe to you Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites. Verse 16, he says, woe to you blind guides. He calls them blind fools in verse 17. Jesus isn't kind of very acting very graciously here with these people. I mean, if we went around calling people fools and hypocrites, well, that's not nice. Well, there's a time when you don't have to be nice to people. If they're not teaching the truth, if they're not supporting sound doctrine, your words can describe them as they are. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, verse 23. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says they're full of greed and self-indulgence. They're blind. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. He it continues down, verse 29, you hypocrites. He gets even more vile here as he speaks to these people. He says in verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. Well, guess who was one of these Pharisees? Nicodemus. The man in our story this morning, he was one of them. See, what we have to understand is any false religion, false religion is the, the satanic you could say strategy around the globe. Any deviation, any separation from the true and pure gospel of Jesus Christ is a damning eternal lie. Even though it may give you the illusion that these people know God. You look at them from the outside and you say, oh, well, they're nice people. They just want to, yeah, they teach a little weird things here and there. But no, God says, no, don't compromise. If you're going to compromise, please don't compromise on doctrine. It was pretty remarkable that he at least got to the point where he believed Jesus had come from God as a Pharisee. Because most of them were pinned against Jesus. I mean, they were calling Jesus who? Beelzebub, the Satan, basically. You're Satan incarnate, Jesus. All these miracles you do, we can't deny the miracles you do, but they're not of God's power. They're from Satan's power. Nicodemus was one of these rulers. He was a, he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now, the Sanhedrin, kind of the Supreme Court of Israel, is about 70 members and usually if they had to break a tie or something, they, they would bring in the high priest. But these were very wealthy. They were very rich. They were scholars. They were at the top, the cream de creme of, uh, cream de creme of the society. Very prominent family backgrounds. Nicodemus was one of these individuals. So let's just say for the sake of being concise here, the Pharisees were the most religious of the religious. That's what they were. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what is a religion? A religion is something that attempts to reach out to a holy God through human means. 
That's really what a religion is. Sometimes you be flying or whatever, and you start talking to somebody next to you, and sometimes they'll, what do you do for a living? And finally, I'm a pastor. So, oh, wow, wow, you must be very religious. No. (laughs) No, I'm nothing but religious. I'm not religious. What do you mean? And they they don't understand. Because religion is just working your way to heaven. You're trying to do everything that your religion tells you to do. That's not what I have with Christ. With Christ, I have a relationship. See, this is the difference between a religion and Christianity. In two words, a religion is based on one word, D-O. It's all based on what you do. Think about it. Any of the world religions, what do they do? The first thing they do, here's what you have to do to be good in our religion. And they give you their list of do's and don'ts. In my church, growing up, the Catholic church, you go to communion, you go to confession, serve as an altar boy. As long as you did certain things, said certain things the right way, everything was good. It's all based on what you do. That's not Christianity of the Bible. The Christianity of the Bible says, and it's not based on what you do. That doesn't even really count. As a matter of fact, what you do is like a filthy rag before a holy God. Do you understand that? He's concerned more about your attitude of what was done, D-O-N-E, on your behalf at Calvary. See, a true Christian understands that. It's not what we do. It's what was done for us. Well, these Pharisees were the ones who were keeping the law. They were the ones who studied their scriptures the most. They were following every little rule. And yet here is a ruler who studied the law. He's credentialed. He's accomplished. And this man, Nicodemus, it says that he, he comes out and he seeks out Jesus, the teacher. And he wants an answer from him because something's missing in his life. There's something that's not adding up. He's having a hard time connecting the dots in his religion. He's curious. This is really his where do babies come from moment, you could say. Maybe this morning this is exactly the question that we need to ask. I mean, we're in a religious context. We're here within the four walls of a church. We're sitting in a chair. We have a Bible open. We're hearing someone preach the word of God. Definitely a religious situation. What's interesting here is when we read this story, and he comes to Jesus, Jesus basically replies to his question, And he says, you know what? You have to be born again. (laughs) That's what he says, that you need to be born again. Um, Now, Jesus is the master teacher. Would you agree? I mean, if there's anyone who's a teacher, it's Jesus. He's the best preacher who ever lived. And Nicodemus asked them this question, And it's, it's interesting because he, he poses this. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no man can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Doesn't sound like a question to me. Kind of sounds like a statement. So why is Jesus answering a question? 
because Jesus knows what's going on in the man's heart. He knows, he knows what's going on here. And so Jesus responds there. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a metaphor that Jesus is using here in his ministry. And did you know it's the only place that Jesus uses this metaphor of being born from above, being born again? Think about it with me. I mean, he didn't tell the woman at the well she needed to be born again. <laughs> Did she? Did he? No. He didn't say that. He didn't tell the rich young ruler he needed to be born again. We don't see it in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not up there teaching about being born again. His disciples, to my memory, never came to him and said, Master, how do we be born again? Why does he respond to this man this way? Because Jesus knew in this moment, this man had a need. Just like this morning, Jesus knows you're sitting here this morning, you may have a need that no one else knows about. Maybe you don't even know about it, but God does. God does. He had a question. He was trying to connect the dots. Everything he studied in his religious life, all the things that he had seen Jesus doing and the authority with which Jesus spoke, he had a question. And Jesus responds with this metaphor of new birth that really exposed the need of Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus' greatest need in this moment was just like birth. It was something that needed to happen to him. Not something he could accomplish on his own. There's so many things wrapped up in these 18 verses. We're not going to get into all of it, but so many truths. You can learn about the character of Jesus and the person of Nicodemus. I mean, you can, you can spend a whole several... Sermons on John 3.16, for goodness sake. We're not going to do that. I just want to pull a couple things out here. And they're kind of under the mantle of when we encounter Jesus. When we encounter Jesus. The first one is when we encounter Jesus, we must come humbly. We must come humbly. I mean, do you know how much humility it took for this ruler of the Jews to come to another teacher? He was a teacher himself. And to ask such elementary and basic sounding questions. Like, surely you're from God. I'm not seeing this. I, I need help to, to, commit, to connect the dots here. This isn't adding up with what I've been taught in my religion it took great humility for Nicodemus to ask that question. As a matter of fact, the text even tells us, when did Nicodemus come to Jesus? It says at night. At night. The cover of darkness. I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's something John just kind of, well, I'll just throw this little detail in there. No, God's Holy Spirit put that in there for a purpose. I think it's meant to point to something. And there's been a lot of speculation. I've been reading all week about this, and everybody has their own, wow, he came for this reason, he came for that reason. 
But you know what? To be honest, the text doesn't tell us. If you read the text, it doesn't tell us why he came at night. It just said he did. I mean, certainly one of the reasons, maybe the most speculated and first answer you would give if someone were to ask you, why did this guy come to Jesus at night? Probably to protect his, what, reputation? I think maybe that played into it. I do. Because it says later in the text, aren't you, Jesus asked some questions, aren't you the teacher of the Jews? Not just a teacher. No, you're the teacher. There's a definite article there. It separates him from the other 6,000 Pharisees and Sadducees. It says, no, you're the one. You're the, you're the teacher. It's very possible that we're looking upon a religious scholar who is very, very, very high tops all back in that time in the person of Nicodemus. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. He's studied. He's credentialed. He's also referred to as their teacher, the teacher. And here is Rabbi Teacher Nicodemus coming Addressing Jesus, he does so respectfully. He says, Rabbi, he calls him teacher, and he's saying, I need to be taught. That's very humbling. It took great humility at the cost of his reputation. And so there's been that speculation, that he came in the, the cover of darkness so to protect his reputation so he wouldn't be seen so that he could explore the curiosity of these things that were on his heart. He saw Jesus doing these miracles. And without sacrificing his public reputation and quite possibly his job, his vocation, his livelihood as a teacher, that could be it. doesn't tell us that, but maybe we could read that into the text. I mean, I think any of us would feel that way. But I want to ponder with you maybe another reason that he came at night. Maybe another reason that may have played into Nicodemus' life, his mind, why he visited Jesus at night in the cloak of darkness. It's simply this. It was urgent. It was urgent. If you showed up at my house at 2 a.m., it better be urgent. <laughs> Right? I mean, you know, and if I showed up at your house, it better be urgent, Pat. Can I borrow some sugar? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Get lost. Here he is coming to Jesus at night, and maybe the, the cloak of darkness helped him out here, but I think it was something that was weighing on his heart. There was an urgency in this man's heart. I mean, think about it. You've spent your entire life in a religious context. No doubt Nicodemus did. All of his life was wrapped around religiosity. You have a platform to teach what you know about the scriptures, what you know about God. And all of a sudden, here comes someone, never heard of him before, he comes along, and, and you know enough, and you've seen his ministry from maybe a distance, 
that this person, you know enough about this person that these miracles that he's doing, I can't answer, I can't give you a practical, you know, he's not cheating, he's not lying, he's actually healing people. It's amazing. Miraculous, wonderful signs. He had no answer for this. And then he probably heard Jesus even teach from a distance and he taught with such authority. And he comes to the conclusion, you must be from God. That's what Nicodemus concludes. I don't understand what's going on here and I want some answers and I'm coming to you because you have to be from God, Jesus. Nothing that you experienced Nothing of your knowledge of Scripture, none of the things that you were taught by other people as you were brought up in this religious environment, satisfied to answer in your own mind who this man was and who and what he's up to. So I think Nicodemus had an urgent problem. He wanted an answer. Because if you're an expert in an area and you don't have an answer... You want to find the answer real quick, right? Because if you don't find the answer, guess what? You're not an expert anymore. (laughs) He has this urgent problem. So he comes with urgency. And, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, beloved... Uh, no matter which one of these two you like, he came by night because he wanted to protect his reputation or he came urgently. Um, I think we can relate to both of them, frankly. Think about it. When we come to Jesus, what does he say? You have to count what? You have to count the cost. Why? Because your reputation's at stake. Bottom line, your reputation's on the line. When you profess publicly that you follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you do so in a post-Christian culture in which we live like today, you know what? It's going to cost you public reputation. There's going to be things that you must stand on, solid biblical principles, biblical truth, that guess what? Aren't going to be popular with your little gathering of your friends, maybe even your own family. Certainly not the broader culture at hand. So we have to count the cost. We have to come humbly. But wouldn't you say also this morning that our position before God is urgent? It's urgent? The human condition, beloved, I don't know that it could be described as more urgent. Look at what's going on in our society. And all the way back from the book of Genesis, we were given this promise that this entire land was for, what, Adam and Eve. Everything that God created, he created for them and their offspring. To what? To have dominion and to enjoy God and walk with him. And when they were given dominion all the way, and then... They blew it. (laughs) You can do anything you want. There's one no. One no I'm going to give you. One rule. Just one. Do anything. You just can't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's the only thing you can't do. (laughs) 
everything else, just have a blast. And here's the promise for the day that you eat at that tree. You will surely what? Die. That's the promise. Do whatever you want, but don't do this. Because if you do that, this is going to happen. What did they do? They ate of the tree. And guess what? They enacted the promise of God. See, God is always true to his word. He's always true to his word. And in that moment, they were invaded with spiritual death. The curse of sin extended to all creation. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you turn over there, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we actually read about this condition going on. Remember, Ephesians, Ephesus, it's a church. It's a people of, a church of, of people that know and follow Christ. So this is written to people like you and I. And look at what it says in verse 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Wow. Dead in trespasses of sin. That's our human condition before a holy God. So the text doesn't tell us, back to John, it doesn't tell us why he came, doesn't tell us why Nicodemus came, but one thing we can be certain of this morning is that he had some urgency, is that we have an urgent reason to answer the same questions ourselves because of our position before God. We're all cursed by sin, are we not? We're all living in the, the reality of God's promise all the way back from the book of Genesis. If you do this, you will die because of our rebellion against our Creator we are dead, the Bible says, in our trespasses and sins. We find ourselves in this desperate state, in this urgent position. And this is more than just theology, my friends. This is a reality, whether you recognize it or not. See, the good news of the, of the gospel is so good precisely because the bad news of the gospel is so bad. It's urgent. And if it takes humility to engage with Jesus at the cost of everything, including your reputation, and with the urgency that understands the, the predicament in which you're in, this is what it takes. It takes that kind of desire. It takes that kind of humility. Now, it's not the act of humility as some religious virtue that gains you forgiveness with God. I'm not saying that. It's not that when we encounter Jesus, we come with humility, and then Jesus looks at us and goes, oh, you're so humble. Oh, okay, that's earned you right to be in my presence. No, we're not talking about that. Because Jesus requires payment. God requires payment for our forgiveness As if it's not like we exchange our humility and Christ says that's good enough. See, that's, that's religious. That's religion teaching. 
See, the way of Jesus has always required humility. This isn't something new. This isn't something that Nicodemus is hearing for the first time. All the way back in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 14, all the way back to the Old Testament, this is something Nicodemus knew. He would have been very familiar with. It says, if my people who are called by my name, what's the next word? Word. Well, what? You know the verse. Humble themselves, right? And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. See, the way of Jesus, the way to God has always, always required humility. But not humility as a religious payment. Meaning that you, somehow you earn God's righteousness through humility. Could it be that humility is required because repentance is a humble act? Could it be that the way of Jesus, the Old Testament tells us before Christ was ever incarnated, before he ever walked on earth, it reveals that humbleness has always been the path to God because repentance itself is an act of humility? Not that we earn it for our character, because here's the truth. As you continue to read Scripture, you have two options, two options. Either you engage Jesus and you come humbly, or he will humble you. Either you engage Jesus and you come humbly, or he will humble you. I mean, think about these stories in scriptures. Think of the Apostle Paul. Another Pharisee, by the way. Religious leader of Jesus, or post-Jesus' day, but he, he was a religious leader. Guess what? He didn't engage Jesus with a humble heart. You know the story of Saul, of Tarsus, on his way to persecute Christians. What happens? He's knocked flat down off his horse, blinded on the road to Damascus, and he is completely humiliated in front of everybody that was with him. Couldn't see, couldn't talk, couldn't do anything. Blown away. Something happens to him that he could never have done to himself. And in a millisecond, his life is transformed. It's turned around. But he didn't earn it because of his humility. He had to be what? Humbled. He had to be humbled. Think about another story, the rich young ruler. He was unwilling, the Bible seems to indicate, to go and sell everything he had. He was unwilling to do it. You remember how the passage ends. It says that he walked away, what? Sad. He walked away, his encounter with Christ, grieved. He was humbled in that moment because all of the wealth that he had accumulated, it left him with nothing. Nada. It left him sad. It left him humbled. And you read story after story. You see the Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. 
and through his wisdom and through his insight, he humbles them. And he puts them in their place over and over again. See, either we engage Jesus with a humble heart of repentance, understanding simply that he has already done what needs to be done for us. We just need to lay it down to come to him, come before him with urgency because of our desperate, sinful condition. Or he will humble us. There's no other path. If we seek our own pride, we will one day find ourselves humbled. And now it doesn't really matter why he came at night. It doesn't matter whether it was to protect his reputation, whether it was because of urgency. But here's what we know, and here's what we can see, that he did engage Jesus with the respect of what he had seen. He calls him rabbi. He calls him rabbi. The profound nature of the, the teacher of Israel, who rightfully owns the term rabbi, calls someone else his teacher on its face. That would be shocking to someone who is Jewish. Because here is the supreme teacher of the Jews calling somebody else a teacher. Wait a minute. That would, be like, that would be like the Pope going to somebody in, in, in a simple little Catholic church and getting advice on Catholicism. You would say, what's wrong with this picture? It would be like Elon Musk calling you and saying, hey, can you give me some advice how to create an electric car? You would go, what? It doesn't make any sense. This is a religious expert, Nicodemus is, and he's coming before Jesus, and he's coming with humility, and he's recognizing that there's something missing here. There's something not right in my life. There's something he hasn't been able to connect. And this morning, we can tell from Jesus' answer that what Jesus is saying is that you must be born, what, again. You must be born again. Now, if there was an evangelist there, they probably would have addressed this man with, hey, let me get my track out here. Let me show you, you know, I got five happy ways, trails to Jesus or whatever. Do this, do this. Oh, or pray this prayer. Jesus doesn't do anything. He, he basically says, you must be born again. That's something that's passive. That's not something that you can do because you kind of see in the questions of Nicodemus when he's asking, he's, he's kind of asking the, the why question, the how question. Like, how can this happen? And he, he goes on and he texts there, look at it. He says, he, he can, can he re-enter the womb? How can a, a man be born when he's old? This isn't making any sense, Jesus. What am I supposed to do? Just tell me, do something. This is what my religion has taught me all my life, what I'm supposed to do. I'm asking you a simple question. Just give me the list of do's, and I'll be your follower. He was perplexed. Because he's asking, how? How do I do this? Because that's what he learned. It's up to him. 
You have to perform. You earn the grace of God. You learn more. If I know enough, maybe if I do enough, if I follow enough of the law, just tell me how much I have to do to have a right standing before a holy God. That's all I want to know, Jesus. So the natural question is, although he's coming with humility, he's asking a completely wrong question. He's asking the wrong question. How do I do this? How do I perform? And the reality is Jesus is giving him an answer much deeper than his question. This is a very intellectual guy. He can't comprehend what Jesus is saying to him because his answer is not that he needs more religion. That's not what Jesus is telling him. That's what he expected. See, there's a standard that God requires, that Nicodemus in his expertise, in his accomplishments, in his intellect, that you and your religiosity and all your church attendance and all your Bible study and all your effort to do a better time and spend hours on your knees in prayer being a better parent, trying to be a more faithful spouse. See, there's a standard that God requires. None of that meets God's standard, period. You need something that's out of your control. That comes to you as experience from another, from outside. This is what he's telling Nicodemus. You need a new birth. You need to be born again from above. It's not something you can control. You see, listen, the helpless don't ask how. The helpless don't ask how. They cry out for help. Just think about it in life. Have you ever seen someone in peril? Have you ever seen... Maybe a, a, a little child who's in a pool who can't swim. He fell in the, and he's starting to go under. He's not asking, hey, how, how do I swim to the edge of the pool? What's he doing? Help! I'm drowning. Have you ever been around someone who thinks maybe their life is about to come to an end? Maybe you saw it in a video or a movie or something. They're about ready to breathe. They think their last breath. Maybe they got shot and they're bleeding profusely and they're not saying, hey, how do, how do I bind up my wound so I can be better? No, they're just saying, help! I need help! When your child at 3 a.m. comes running in your room and they're crying and they're scared because they had a bad dream. They're not asking how to lock the door, how to be more safe. They're just saying, protect me, help me! I'm desperate! See, the heart that's required for new birth is not one of religious action. It's not one of religious action. It's one that acknowledges in humility our helplessness. See, we think we can change the rules. We just change the rules, we can win. That's what religion does. They keep changing the rules. From the beginning of Scripture... It's revealed 
one consistent requirement to have a relationship with God. One thing that you need to have a relationship with God is simply this, absolute perfection. You have to be perfect. No sin, not one. But what's our problem? It's an urgent problem, is it not? Because all of us are corrupted by sin. The Bible says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. See, stop asking so much the how questions and start asking who. Who can fix this for me? Who am I to look to? Because what Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. One of John's favorite words in the entire gospel is the word behold. Behold Jesus. Oh, you know, just gaze upon the glory of Jesus. Over and over again, you see it. Religion does three things quickly. It's in your notes there. Religion's built on three things. It's built upon intellectual qualification. Nicodemus could have checked that box, could he not? I mean, he was very well trained. Religious, religions are built upon ritual dedication, being at all the right things. Oh, I'm in church every week, Pastor. Yeah, okay. I even come on Wednesday nights. Oh, great. Doing them consistently, following the rules. Thirdly, religions are built upon moral regulation. In other words, managing how much we are and are not sinning so that we can change the standard and say, well, you know what? At least I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I'm at least good enough to earn some of God's favor. Come on. So we try to regulate our morality as if that's what earns us eternal life. And what this passage does is it, it slaps us in the face and it says, no, when you engage Jesus, either you come to him humbly as one who needs help, who's absolutely helpless, crying out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, or he will humble you. Mark it down. There's no other option and what Nicodemus needs is not more religion. He needs something far outside himself. He needs a new birth. He needs to be brought from life to death. He needs the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that comes a few chapters later. We'll be talking about that next week. So you come humbly. Secondly, you have to come, you have to see spiritually. When we engage Jesus, we have to engage him with humility, but we also see spiritually after you come to Christ you see spiritually when he says behold to look upon to gaze upon Jesus John says several times but in this particular text he says if you want to see the kingdom you must be born again what does see the kingdom mean I mean in one sense if you want to see the power of the kingdom in your life that's true but also, if you want to participate in the kingdom of God at all, if you want to live eternally with God forever, what Jesus says is you must be born again. If you want the power of resurrection in this life to defeat sin, the sin that so easily entangles, the scripture says, the sin that's enslaved your heart, you must be born again. So when we encounter 
have an encounter with Jesus, it causes us, and we must then see spiritually. You see our desperate condition, the urgent position that we're put in to understand that we are dead. Causes us to understand that because that spiritual death, we no longer see spiritual things. We have been blinded to it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled, it's hidden to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the power of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel is veiled. There's a spiritual blindness among those who don't believe. It's prevented them from seeing the glory of Jesus. Do you understand the significance of what that means to those who haven't had an encounter with Jesus? Do those who haven't counted the cost of the call of the bid of the gospel to come and die and to lay down your life so that you can live? You can't see spiritually. You can't participate in the kingdom of God. The power of the resurrection means absolutely nothing to those who don't believe. And when we have a true encounter, authentic encounter with Christ, it causes us for the very first time, and most of you in this room have experienced this, to actually see spiritually. If you want to see the kingdom, if you want to participate in the goodness of God on this side of eternity, you must, Jesus says, be born again. And let me remind you, there's nothing you can do because you're helpless. You're helpless. But there is one. There is one who has come in your place, who died for your sins to provide you with an escape, the escape that we all so desperately need. All of the righteousness that you could never earn through religion, Jesus Christ offers you something better. He he offers you a relationship. He offers you a relationship from religion to relationship. This is what Nicodemus wants. This is what he is experiencing. And we begin to see spiritually, because God is working, because we've been regenerated by the Spirit of God, it causes us to relate to Jesus in a completely different way. He goes from being the teacher to being father. He goes from being the one that we gaze upon and we marvel at all the works he's done. We finally realize, wow, he's done it for us. He's done it for me. And that's our prayer for you this morning if you're here with us or you're watching online is, is that you would encounter Christ. That you would come with the spirit of humility. But that you would also encounter Jesus in authentic, true, saving faith. Don't just dip your toe in the waters of religion. Don't just attend church for a little while, hoping it'll make you feel better about yourself. We pray that you would come to a place where the Spirit of God 
regenerates your heart. He gives you new life. You pass from, from death to life. That the power of the resurrection is certainly for you. You understand that. And just as Jesus Christ has, was raised from the dead, that you understand now that you too will live with Christ for all eternity if you place your faith in him. Now Nicodemus walked away from this interaction still having questions, no doubt. Doesn't really tell us what happened here. You know, we try to teach everything in an hour, right? Or maybe an hour and 15 minutes, whatever it is. But we try to teach everything in an hour, right? We want, we want all the answers by the end of the message. Theologically, we're told we're saved by the Spirit of God, that he regenerates our heart. He does something in us that we can't do for ourselves. This says that you must be born of spirit and water. There's been a lot of misunderstandings about this. Some people, oh, that means baptism. You have to be baptized to be saved. No, it doesn't mean that. Really, what he's doing is he's taking Nicodemus back to somewhere like Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, where it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and shall be clean and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Where does pure religion come from? See, following the rules is a good thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with following the rules, following the law of God. That's a good thing. But where does pure religion come from? It comes from our hearts being regenerated by the Spirit of God, by God giving us new life. You can't earn it. He places the Spirit within us, and then he empowers us to walk a Christian life of obedience I don't know about you, but I don't wake up every morning wondering how I'm going to earn God's favor. I don't wake up saying, what do I have to do to get more grace from God? What a horrible place that would be in. You would be in if that was your mindset. Always having to perform. He gives us Nicodemus this amazing illustration to understand because you know what? Nicodemus doesn't understand. He says, how can this be? I don't get it. I jump back into the womb. What's going on here? And Jesus basically says, why are you asking such a silly question? That's what Jesus says. He says, you see the wind, you feel the effects of the wind, you hear the wind, but you don't question the wind. You can't see it, but you don't question it exists, do you? You see its effects just like we see the effects of God in people's lives. That's why you're here, Nicodemus. You've seen what I've done. You hear it just like you can hear people singing praises back to God. But even though we don't see it in the flesh right now, the Spirit of God, we know that he exists. Just we, like we know the wind exists. And when he's talking about the wind here and he's talking about the Spirit... It's interesting, it's the same Greek word. Pneuma, same Greek word. He's using a brilliant teaching here. He's saying, you keep looking back to religion, but you need something 
that you can't do. You need something more Nicodemus, and you can't do it. What does relationship offer as we close? Relationship is offered by grace alone. It's grace. It's unearned, unmerited favor. It's not anything that you can do. It's not about your performance or your credentials. It's about God wanting to do something in you. Secondly, it's through faith alone. You must trust in God, whose spirit is regenerating you, and on the inside, he's giving you new life. He's opening your eyes spiritually, by grace alone, through faith alone, and it's in Christ alone. It's not in a church. It's not in a pastor. It's not in a priest. It's in Christ, in Christ alone. There's only one object of our faith that can bring you to the point of salvation, beloved, and that's the person, and that's the work of Jesus Christ. And the result is we live differently. We live differently. This man, Nicodemus, the only man in the Gospels who, the only Pharisee who came to Christ, but he shows up two more times later on in the Gospel. First time he shows up, he's part of the Sanhedrin who's considering the charges that have been brought against Jesus. And guess what he says? He's the one voice, the only voice that speaks up and says, hey, maybe we, maybe we should bring him in and let him speak for himself. Maybe we're moving too quickly here. He's not outright defending Jesus, but he's kind of saying, hey, we might want to take a pause here. Let's get some different advice. And we know exactly what the Sanhedrin did. They sentenced him to death. But you see, Nicodemus is starting to look at life differently. He's starting to live differently. Do you know the next time we find Nicodemus, the last one that we read about comes in John 19. And guess what? This is the resurrection story. And it's because that Nicodemus shows back up on Good Friday. Just as Christ has been crucified. And this man named Joseph of Arimathea, he's with him and he, he provides a tomb for Jesus. And in John 19, verse 39, it says, Nicodemus also, along with Joseph of Arimathea, who earlier had come to visit Jesus by night, same Nicodemus, the only Nicodemus, came bringing, listen, a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. On Good Friday, Jesus' lifeless body is being buried. And there's two men who step forward to serve Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea gives him his tomb, and guess who? This guy, Nicodemus. Something happened. I mean, think about it, 75 pounds of myrrh. That's a significant amount of spices. Very expensive, by the way. Some commentators would say that it would literally take tens of tens of people to carry all this stuff. And here's Nicodemus, who quite possibly was the second most powerful person other than the king in the whole land. He called upon his earthly power to live differently now and to serve Christ. What's he saying? He's bringing 75 pounds of spices. Now, who cares? What's that mean? It says this, beloved. It says, you know what? Jesus, everything I have, 
is yours. Everything. Everything I have is yours. When I gaze upon what you've done, when I understand that there's nothing that I can do, but it's your spirit that brings me life on the inside, I'm willing to give you everything. That's what Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This life, everything I have is yours. See, when we have an encounter with Jesus, it causes us to live differently. And that's what we see right here with Jesus with Nicodemus coming to Christ. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, what? In newness of life. See, when we see spiritually, it causes us to worship. It causes us to live differently. If anyone serves me, Jesus said, he must follow me and where I am there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. When we have an encounter with Jesus, we come humbly, we see spiritually, we live differently. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Lord, we pray that more than anything, if there's any here, even here in this place this morning, who has not surrendered their lives to Christ, that they have not come to faith in Christ, Lord, that they would see the dire need, the urgency of this decision that is placed before them. Either you're for Christ or you're against him. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. And we call upon all those to turn to the Lord. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me by your grace. Reveal my need for the forgiveness of my sin. And I look to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want desire to live my life for him from now on. If you make that a matter of prayer before you and God, he'll hear that prayer and he'll change you. He'll open your eyes spiritually when you come humbly before him. Father, as believers, I pray you would encourage our hearts today as we go back out into this world of sin and death and destruction really all around us. Lord, that we would go with a spring in our step knowing that we have the answer, we have hope. And the hope is right here in the cross of Christ, in the empty tomb, in our Lord that gave everything for us. Is it too much to ask that we give everything to him? We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.